Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, my name is David Runciman and this is Past, Present, Future, a podcast of ideas. We're going to be coming to you every week on a Thursday talking about the history of the most interesting ideas, from politics to philosophy, from science to fiction, where they come from, what they mean, why they matter. And today I'm talking to the novelist Ian McEwan about his favourite work of political fiction and how it explains almost everything about democracy. Past, Present, Future is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, Europe's leading literary magazine, Listeners can subscribe at a special rate just by going to lrb.me slash ppf. That's lrb.me slash ppf. Ian, we're talking about a book by Italo Calvino, the great Italian writer. I think people who know Calvino at all probably associate him with a kind of high concept, fable writing books about the author, the reader, the book. This is not that Calvino. So I remember that Calvino when I was a student. If on a winter's night, a traveller, I want to say I read it, I tried to read it. Not a very happy experience. I should probably go back to it. But this is a different kind of piece of writing. How would you characterise this one, this Calvino? Well, you're right. It's substantially different from the fantastical stories of um, Calvino's highest popularity, which became a sort of vaguely hippie-ish favourite of people who thought that the glass bead game was the greatest piece of fiction ever written. There's a strong touch of social realism about it, but it's also written in a tortured kind of dialectic at certain stretches. And then at other points, it moves into a wonderful lucidity when you're back in this extraordinary uh, setting. In Cotolengo, a vast institution run by the Catholic Church, Uh, And many of the inmates are severely physically and mentally afflicted, and many of them are completely incapable. Let's tell people a bit about it, because then we'll get into what it actually might be about. Um, It's called The Watcher. It was published in 1963. It's short, so it's a novella. It's novella length. But it's set 10 years earlier, so it's set on election day in 1953. And as you say, it has this extraordinary setting, a real place, and as we'll come on to the election day, it was also, it's the real election day. But the place is Cotolengo in Turin. So what kind of a place is it? So it's a, a vast place in itself, set within an even vaster place, a kind of, as uh, Calvino notes, a, a sort of city in itself. And it's election time, 53. Calvino's obviously with the left-wing party, almost certainly the Communist Party. And well, I often think that if you're going to write a political novel, why not set it round a election polling booth station, the narrator or the central figure of this story, Amerigo, is deputed, he volunteers to be a watcher, that is to make sure that the votes are conducted according to the rules. Now, 
he knows, everybody knows, that the Catholic Church is highly stitched into the Christian Democratic Union and almost certainly the nuns will be persuading the inmates, some of whom do not have all their faculties, to vote in the appropriate way. And Amerigo's task is to make sure that this doesn't happen and that everybody follows the rules and goes into the booth by themselves. So where they start, in a, they set up on the ground floor of the building. So really, almost immediately, you're taken into the heart of who votes and who doesn't vote. Who's capable, who isn't capable? And it's right at the heart, as it were, in this very short novel. It takes us right into the heart of the, of the political process, which is why for the last 40 years I've been pressing it on people, film directors, friends who love fiction, people who want to make a special case for the novella, to say this is one of the most extraordinary and brilliant political novels. It doesn't push a point of view Calvino came from a very strictly unreligious background. His father was an agronomist in Cuba. His mother was a botanist. They tried to keep Calvino out of any form of religious education. Calvino himself, as a young man, like most of his generation, had very powerful political leanings to the Communist Party. He resisted the fascist government's conscription and fled, went into the hills and fought for a long time against um, government troops. So he put his money where his mouth was, and although he was disaffected like many others after the Hungarian invasion, still his leanings were to the left. He often had to justify himself at school why his parents had objected and he wasn't obliged to go and have any kind of religious instruction. And he said explaining himself gave him an immense tolerance towards the religious view. Though he couldn't be part of it, didn't believe in any of it, he somehow has a respect for it. And that really comes through in this novella. The, the nuns who work there work for a higher good, one that he himself cannot believe in, but he sees that no one else would be looking after these people. But still, right at the heart of this novel is the matter of voting and moral responsibility, political responsibility... And there's another thread to this, David, which if Calvino was my mate and we were both 25 years old, I would have said, this is the bit of the novel that you really need to amplify a little. He just leaves it there. It is not analysed. But in the lunch break, his lover phones him to tell him that she's pregnant. His heart sinks because he thinks, really, it was time he moved on from this affair. He's clearly a man with very few attachments. He's a serial monogamist, I think. And he wants immediately to persuade her towards an abortion. Now, this runs parallel to this, you know, who lives, who votes, who gets to make choices, him or her. It's beautifully done, and maybe he's right to keep it sort of without comment, but it definitely sits there in the heart of this novel as a microcosm of everything that he's going through as they ascend the building. And once they start to ascend the building, and it's almost like a layer cake of greater human frailty and incapability, till finally you get to some balcony where there's men sitting in high chairs and the stench of piss and shit, and yet still the sister, the nun who's taking them round, says, but they're wonderful, they're wonderful. And he cannot feel this. So he has to hand it to the religion, even though he keeps his distance from it. So, you know, it's, I think, a most remarkable fiction. And um, 
so remote, as you said at the beginning, from you know the Baron in the Trees, the Cosby comics, the fantastical stuff that we associate Calvino with. So it's happening in a real place that existed on a real day, election day, 1953, and this this vast city-like structure full of both, as you said, religious inmates, including the nuns who also vote, and then the pe- many of the people that they look after, and this question that the narrator, the Calvino figure, and he's called Amerigo, he's called America, yes, and Calvino's called Italy, and yeah. apparently that's quite an unusual name, I read, that his mother yeah. called him Italo because he was born outside of Italy, to remind him he was Italian. So this character is called America. And he has to decide who can vote and who can't vote. And it is the basic question of democracy, who counts. And he always has two answers. So it's a book that's full of a kind of double answer to everything. And we'll come on to the question of the abortion, because he's somewhat torn on that too at various points. But there's there's a kind of, in a rationalist mode, he has an answer, which is you know, democracy is a sort of practical business and you have to decide it's his job and this thing to exclude the people who are in some way incapable. And in democracy, some people count more than others. You know, the winners are going to count more than the losers. And you have to show your identity card to prove that you qualify to vote. And if you don't have that, you can't vote. And then the other part of him thinks this is democracy. Everyone counts. There are moments where he looks at this world which is so remote from his world and yet he's deeply moved by it. And he believes that there is something essential to politics and democratic life going on here, which is all of these people are somehow part of it. And it's as the communist, he doesn't believe in democracy because he believes in capital H history. And he's aware that the other side also don't believe in democracy because they believe in capital G God. Both sides are sort of looking at this process and and not believing in it. It's just a sort of empty ritual. And yet throughout, he has these moments where he thinks there's some essential truth happening there in Cotolengo that you can't see anywhere else. He has this habit of mind of taking a view and immediately seeing its opposite. And he's well-versed, you sense, in the sort of dialectics, in the Jesuitical nature of Marxist, communist, Leninist thought. So writing from the perspective of 63 some years after he's left the party, there's almost a parody at certain points of the tangle of Amerigo's thoughts. He doesn't intervene at first. In the morning, he does not intervene. As they ascend through the building, finally he has to make his choice. And he's pushing on an open door. No one resists him. They just say, oh, well, you know, it's a fair cop. You know, they, they, they back off. Almost immediately, he's wondering whether he was right, because what difference would it make anyway? So there are certain points, especially um, in the opening and then midway, when he, or rather Calvino, indulges in a sentence that's like three pages long. A wonderful, perfectly coherent sentence of unbelievable tangle of brackets and things closes between M dashes and a prose that pushes in and on itself hoping to sort of burst into some other kind of higher truth, the one that you're hinting at here. At one point, he's, he feels that the political right, because there are other watchers at this process, and the nuns, and the priest, who looks a bit of, like, of a bully boy, like a bouncer uh, outside a nightclub, are actually all on the same side. They have somehow all thrown their lot in with democracy, And then, of course, as you say, the doubts come as to whether he actually belongs to a democratic party or not. 
uh, history will decide, not voters and so on. So in that sense, it seems to me like the best political novel I've ever read. The political novel is a very difficult matter for all kinds of reasons that we can discuss. But the fact it's done so briefly, like this novella will get you through a two-hour train ride and you have been in a strange place, a really strange place. At some points early on, Amerigo feels as if he's forgotten the rest of his life, that this is now his reality. He's overwhelmed by it. It sort of seizes him and takes him over. And there's a certain point where a dignitary comes in a chauffeur-driven car. It's, it's an MP, obviously, on the right. And the commands he gives and the ways in which he expects everybody to do exactly what he says, but he's very good at brushing up the egos of his followers. And then he sweeps out. You know, someone wants to bother him with a rather difficult detail. He just sweeps on and he's gone. And again, Amerigo hates him in a sense, but also admires him. <laughs> so always this dialectic, which I think is part of the charm. And somewhere behind this, like all good writing, I always maintain, at the heart of all good writing is comedy. A comic sense of, well, as you know, Balzac knew this when he called his great chain of novels the human comedy, comedy men. So that there's a smile lurking behind this novel, a smile at the tangle of dialectic thinking and a smile at the political process for which there is no real answer as to where you can draw the line. It's always going to be a fictional line. It's always just going to be a matter of urge that you just say enough is enough. He, she cannot vote and then suddenly feel guilty about it. And as you say, he moves. So it's a novel that happens over a day. I mean, it's got a, a beautiful arc to it and it's got a kind of lunch break in it. And it moves through the building or the complex of buildings as you move up each story. It's not that the question gets harder. In a sense, as you say, the question gets easier because it becomes more absurd, the idea that these people can vote because they are almost physically incapable of voting. And yet you're never sure and he has doubts all the way. They clearly can't even hold a pen. They can't vote. So when the nun offers to hold a pen for someone, that's when Amerigo says, no, that's... Enough is enough. And, th and that's him as the, as the sort of rational communist. He knows his yeah. job, but there's always then a part of him. So he's not just describing people no. who are incapable because there's part of him that's a different kind of Democrat yeah. that thinks the point of democracy is its complete sort of openness to anything, any possibility, including the possibility that all of these people have something to say. And the actual political context for this, and again, it's sort of, it's part of his journey through the day and through the building. He starts off with quite a clear view, which is that this election is particularly important, but also particularly farcical, because the government's introduced, I think it's translated as the fraud law, yeah, which is the idea because Italian politics has always been haunted by the idea that proportional representation makes government impossible. No one's ever going to agree. So you need these super majorities. Yeah. So this law is introduced, for, and this is the first election where it's going to run where if the winning coalition can get 50 plus one vote, 50% plus one, 50.01, they get a supermajority and they can do whatever they like. Yeah. And there's a feeling it's very close. And so the votes of these people could be decisive. And he starts the day thinking, this is a giant fraud. These people are being coerced or conned. They don't have any free will. The nuns, the priests are telling yeah, them what to do. They'll all vote for They'll all vote for yeah. The, yeah. the rule. And so in, in a sense, and the word he uses for them is, you know, idiots. That's the word he uses. But, you know, democracy is often the fear is it's government by idiots because it's yeah. us. And he just knows what's going to happen, which is... 
because this is a stitch up and this place is symbolic of the stitch up, the right are going to get a kind of supermajority. And he just, in passing at the end, writing 10 years later, let slip the truth. And this is what happened on election day 1953, mm. which is they got 49.9% of the vote. And they didn't. And it was a matter of just a few thousand, but it went the other way. And yet almost by this point in the story, he's moved such a higher plane. He's not fussed anymore about those practical democratic questions about you know, these, these tiny margins. It's full of, uh, David, wonderful little aperçu about the political process. He says on, on the left that if they were to win, they'd regard that as a kind of defeat. <laughs> However, if they were to lose... Of course, they would regard that as a kind of victory. <laughs> so, again, you see this wonderful slotting together of contrary ideas. So, it's lived in great obscurity, this story. Um, you don't see it on, you know, when people mention Calvino, this doesn't come to anyone's lips. And when I suggested it to you some months ago, I was delighted that you even then wrote to me to say you'd bought it because, I mean, the number of times people recommend books to me and I completely forget about it by the next breakfast. And then when you said how you were drawn in, I thought, at last, I've persuaded someone else to not only read this novel, but love it too. Well, we're going to try and persuade a few more. I hope so. I think it's one of the great pieces of post-war fiction, really. When I was reading it, I found myself thinking about what resonates in it now. So it's partly about a form of identity politics, the phrase that we hear all the time. But there are two kinds of identity politics going on in, in our democracy and, in a sense, in his. There's you know, how you identify. You're the communist, which means you have certain views and you have to stick to those. And then during the day, he, he finds them a bit wobbly. You're the Catholic, you're the Christian. And then there's that other kind of identity politics, which is you have to prove who you are in order to be allowed to vote. And both of these are incredibly present in contemporary democracy. So there is the familiar identity politics of how people identify, what groups they associate with. And then there's a kind of hysteria, particularly in the United States, but increasingly in this country too, about the question of how people prove who they are at the ballot box. So American politics is riven with these arguments, the, the Trumpian idea that it's dead people who are voting, it's, that the whole thing is a giant fraud, that the Republican fear that mail-in voting was what won the election for Biden because you can't control it. And this is about that too. And I read this book and a few days later got my polling card for the local elections that are coming up here imminently. And for the first time, mm -hmm. it says, bring your passport or your driving license. Yeah. And I have that experience that I think many British people have. My, my strongest memory of the first time I voted, I don't know if you have this, but I know a lot of people who do, is the astonishment, expecting to have my identity challenged. Mm. And you think you're going to go in and perform this function, which much must have some sort of rules around it. And you go in, I've forgotten my polling card, and they say, who are you? And you give your name, and they wave you through which was the British way. And I always thought that was one of the most beautiful things about the democracy, that actually, as far as we know, it has not been massively abused. There might have been some stuff around the edges. But the point about that Trumpian thought was it's all false. There weren't these great conspiracies. There weren't Italian bots that were somehow infiltrating voting machines or whatever. It was not true. Even as we speak, Rupert Murdoch has had to accept and pay yeah. £600 million to agree that it wasn't true. But I don't know if this is, a, this is a side issue or not, but when people talk of the partisan rupture 
in American politics. Well, I accept that, you know there might be some outer fringes in the, on the Democratic Party or Democratic voters that, that have just gone somewhat crazy with the notions of identity. But on the other side, it seems to me like 35% of the American voting population has gone completely nuts. Now, I don't think Amerigo would, even in his most high dialectical materialist moments, would give them the house room simply because what they say is a fiction. And I've been rather heartened reading the summaries of the cases that are mounting against Trump that civil society and the rule of law is pushing back slowly, clumsily. You know, I've got some hopes. I mean, this might all be dashed in 24, but I do have some hopes that we might get back to some point, the whole thing just sort of, the balloon gently deflates, uh, the private armies, the weird conspiracies, the Pizzagate stuff, all of it just gets quietly forgotten. Now, if I'm wrong, well, you know, um, I'm going to be out of here within the next 10 years. I'm in my mid-70s. And I'll just watch from afar. You're still younger than the candidates next time I, round, yes, probably. I, I could be their <laughs> eldest son. In this book, Amerigo starts with the view that this is all a con, right? So he's, in a way, he's bought into the idea that the second kind of identity politics I talked about, you know, these people have... Yes, they have ID cards, but they clearly can't vote. They're being coerced. Their votes are sort of being harvested. And he talks about it as a factory. I mean, yeah. he describes this. And that's all laid vast, out for you right yeah, from the beginning. Yeah. And he, he believes, almost in that way you described, that the left has already accepted its defeat. He believes his job is to kind of bear witness to the fact that the right have stolen this election by, among other things, harvesting the votes of people who can't think for themselves, can't decide for themselves. And it's not quite the full-blown conspiracy theory, but it's, you know, he's... He thinks he's going to watch something which is clearly undemocratic. Mm. And by the end, he's... I mean, it's one of the ways in which it's a movingly, not optimistic book, but very open-ended book. Mm. By the end, a lot of that has fallen away, though he does end up challenging the votes of some of these people, although he lets some of them go. He's no longer nearly as exercised by this, and so he lets slip at the end, actually. We didn't lose the election, but it's almost like it doesn't matter. Yeah. I mean, here's one or two of his colleagues... The um, woman in the white shirt, as she's known throughout the rest, he could have given her a name, I guess, who's raised objections right at the beginning. Too soon, Amarillo thinks, and wants to take her aside. And I think maybe he does to say, look, not yet, comrade. Although, Although clearly this is absurd and farcical, yeah. but we need to save our moment yeah. for calling it out. Our Wait till we get to the come. third floor. Yeah. Uh, at the same time, he's, um, he's a communist who is largely not an activist, and uh, this is something he feels he can do because it's practical, and that's all he cares about, what can be practically done to bring things forward. But I agree with you. I mean, I would say that this book is a meditation on politics rather than wishing to persuade you of the case against a religious institution, for example. And because it's so personal, too, not only the phone calls, the irritated phone calls that he has with his girlfriend. They have quite a few. And at one point, he phones her urgently needing to tell her some tangle of thought. And she simply says, shh, she's listening to a record. <laughs> and she makes him seethe at the end of the line while she listens to the singer. I guess if we were to expand this outwards as to how any political novel is going to work, the idea, I think, that has to be at its core of a successful political novel is it's got to be personal. 
it's got to be convincing at the personal level before you get anywhere else. And, of course, the sort of baseline political novel, I suppose, is 1984 and Winston Smith. And whether you buy into that novel or not is really not about whether you can accept that the totalitarian state is going to lead to such outrages. I think most of us can. But whether it works on the page, Winston Smith and his loves and then his final love for O'Brien. I mean, and I often contemplate, what would Orwell's reputation be without those last two political allegory of Animal Farm and 1984? Well, a very interesting writer. A great journalist. And one of a golden generation of interesting writers and a wonderful journalist. But the global reputation of this sort of political novel is what's really made Orwell into a kind of demigod. I've just started to read um, David Taylor's new biography of Orwell. Interesting, the extent to which Orwell was such a creature of the Edwardian world. I mean, not only his time at Eton, but his tastes in in fiction, where many of his mates, when he was 18, were reading hard-edged modernist texts. What really moved him was Walter de la Mer and... um, Somerset Maugham and you know, those many of those writers who now I think very unfairly because they don't fit the prescriptions of modernist uh, critical thinking tend to be dismissed. I think you'd have to sit in a lot of universities before you'd find anyone giving a lecture on Somerset Maugham these days. Great shame, I think. And actually, I'd be glad to be wrong. I don't know if you know that as a fact. So I think in this respect, the political novel shares something of the problem of the climate change novel. You can either write a dystopia and depress everyone, the Cormac McCarthy type, you know, the road novel, and many, many climate change novels are utter dystopias, or you try and rescue it by pinning your hopes on and developing some ideas of a, of a better future. Then you're on a tightrope of preachiness, which can also kill a novel, as we all know. So steering between these two is very, very difficult, an aesthetic as well as a political or climate change matter, which is why I think, to come back to the personal, as it were, you've got to unfold these stories at the level of an individual struggling. And this is a wonderful novel of, of struggling thought. I mean, you are living a, a thought process, and as I say, sometimes extending over pages, single sentence, that's somehow deeply human. You know, this is ultimately a great humanist novel because his sympathies seem to be able to go everywhere. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. 
I think it helps that he's writing as a disillusioned communist. So it's 1960, early 60s, we think he wrote it, published in 63. He's had his moment of disillusion, which is 56. Thinking back to the time before that, 53, when presumably he still had a few more illusions. And I've read some of his essays. He, he wrote, I mean, he wrote an awful lot. And he wrote a lot about the nature of fiction and what it meant to be a writer. And he was preoccupied with this fear that from the left, novelists, he was very worried about the state of Italian fiction, not something most people care about too much now, but that Italian fiction had been captured by people who thought that the personal had to be in the service of capital H history, yeah. which is the problem with Marxist fiction, right? That as well, you know how the story's going to end, or you're meant mm. to know how the story's going to end, and the characters are there to serve the political arguments. Whereas what's so wonderful about this book is that the political arguments are there to flesh out the character. I mean, mm. it's that way round. And that H capital H history, which does get a mention in this, it's one of his anxieties, shouldn't he be reflecting back on this higher structure that is explaining what's going on? It's just part of his set of doubts and anxieties now. It's not determining anything in this story except tells you a little bit about who he is because of what he worries about in relation to the fear that he might think everything is overdetermined. It's that way round. I agree. And he really is sort of making the case that the novel is ultimately a secular form because the same problems you describe with, with political writing or persuasion uh, is true of religious persuasion. It's, it's always been my problem with the writing of Graham Greene, for example. Once you have a deus ex machina in your plots, well, then anything can happen. And you, and you lose that open-ended... Uh, world-embracing, book-of-life feeling of what the novel can achieve. So this is almost like a manifesto of openness. And he is almost uh, ra rather like figures in um, the novels of Saul Bellow, constantly thinking aloud, but never from one particular point of view, shifting and shifting, showing you the, the loveliness, the intricacies of, of contemplation. And every now and then, as I said right at the beginning, the lucidity of the descriptions, the simple, luminous descriptions of, of Cotolengo, the institution itself, and the people who are working there and the people who are suffering there, is beautifully done with great economy. So, yeah, I think we'd have to say it's not a political novel, it's a, it's a humanist novel in the end, and maybe that's where all good fiction must tend. So what do you think is the significance of the subplot, the girlfriend, the pregnancy, the abortion? It's, it's touched on, but it's clearly important. And at one point, he describes his reaction as he thinks it ought to be. So he's terrified of it. So there's a human reaction, which is a kind of instinctive horror. Mm. Jesus, what, what has she done or what have I done and how are we going to get out of this? There's a political reaction where he says at one point, well, given what I think... I'm against increasing world population. I, I should think about this like a good, he says, Scandinavian social democrat. There are too many people in the world. Yeah. So there's that. That's not no the most... No one's going to buy that one. That's not the most persuasive <laughs> version of it. And then alongside this, there are descriptions in the book of parent-child relations. One in particular, there's a very disabled boy in Cotolengo and his father, who's a peasant, yeah. and they're sitting there eating nuts. Mm. And that's what they're sharing. It's the most moving part it's, of the whole book. I mean, it's magical. Yeah. And it comes up a couple of times, I think, before he's heard that he potentially mm. is fathering a child. 
and then later on after he's had that news where he looks at it slightly differently and wonders about himself and his relationship to that kind of love. But he does describe Cotolengo as a place of love and it's, it's a kind of family love and then this is the essence of it. This, as he says, and he describes him sort of patronizingly, this very simple man, this plain man, and they're not there to vote. This is just a visit, right? The dad is visiting the son. But something about that shifts something in him. Hmm. I mean, Amerigo would not fare very well in today's much more liberated and egalitarian sense of where men and women stand with each other because his first reaction when she tells him she's pregnant is he's furious with her. Like, it's all her business, as if he had nothing to do with it. So he's an old-fashioned guy in that respect. And then he thinks he's about to tie himself forever to a woman he's about to leave. He was about to leave. So, you know, there's a pretty sort of straightforward, basic calculation going on here. And then he remembers that he's got to congratulate her or no, but that might encourage her more to... And then he remembers he's against population growth in general. Yes. I mean, that's really <laughs> post-facto. Uh, so in that sense, it's a very human situation. But he knows it's no doubt in his mind, really, that he's got to persuade her into an abortion and says at one point he'll take care of everything. And she says, well, what do you mean by take care of everything? I'm going to raise this child and you'll, you'll never see him and you won't have anything to do with him. Uh, then at another point, she announces... I'm going to Liverpool. And Clearly, we know what that means. Yes. <laughs> going to Liverpool must have been a kind of euphemism for abortion, much like Irish girls 20, 30 years ago in the Republic would be saying, I'm going to London. Immediately then, of course, he swings the other way that patrimony uh, is now denied him. <laughs> so, again, all too human in this respect. And almost absurd. He's absurd yeah. as many of the people. That he starts thinking, mm. I come from another world and I'm going into this crazy world of Cotolengo where nothing is what it seems and, and voters are not really voters. And by the end, he's one of them. I mean, he almost writes it. I'm, one of I'm as conflicted and as double a person as they are. I mean, all of us, our generation, who were reading the newspapers and watching the TV at the time post-89, when all kinds of orphanages and institutions were opened up that, I mean, all of them are pretty bad in all over the world, but the ones in Romania, for example, where children were chained to their beds for a lifetime, could well pursue the thought that comes out of this novel. Well, could a materialist communist party offer the same kind of help that these nuns with them? from his point of view, massively irrational notion of a godhead. They're only doing this to please God, and it's a very higher good that they're serving. And they're the but, only ones who are doing it. No one else is going to no, do it. No, but someone with a, a background like Amerigo's uh, or a political dispensation run by the Communist Party would be very hard pushed to find people to do what these nuns are doing, this lifetime sacrifice to live in, you know, and work in this you know, awful conditions of incurable people, and yet bathing them in love. Again, another problem for someone who has a materialist understanding of history and, and morality. And he says at one point, I know I meant to think this would be better done by the state, mm. but he doesn't believe it. No. Who would do it if the nuns won't? Although, of course, we can, like Amerigo's posing of opposites, think of the Christian brothers in, in the Republic and the terrible 
damage they did, physical and mental, in their religious institution, Catholic, but a special kind of Irish Catholicism, uh, to hold generations of children. So it doesn't always work with religion. I, I don't pose any certainties about that. And it's only because he goes in thinking it's all a con and a fraud mm. that the emphasis is then on the ways in which it's not. I mean, clearly mm. part of himself still knows that this yeah. is not the stuff he believes in. I was thinking if this was to be updated, it would be, as I was saying, these fears around people voting who shouldn't vote are very present in contemporary politics. There's a, a particular set of fears about illegal immigrants in the United States, about dead people. But there's a version of this, the sort of industrial harvesting of votes. This, The contemporary version of this novel would be set in a vast care home or old people's home because one of the facts about 21st century democracy is that many, many voters are very old and many voters who are very old are not really capable of voting. We all know that. I mean, it's not... Mm. I'm not saying anything particularly outrageous by saying that because it's true. And yet there is an understanding that, although I've encountered many people who, when you point this out to them, say, well, we should prevent those people from voting. But there is an understanding that you can't. Because you fear where this may lead. You fear where this may lead. But at the same time, the same anxieties that Amerigo has in this mm. are there, particularly, I think, possibly on the left, although the people who express them tend to be on the right, who say that you know there's mm. vast voter fraud going on. But that sense that in this, people living in a Christian institution are voting en masse for the right. But the old tend to vote right and the young tend to vote left. Mm. But the very old, and some of the very old, are not, by rational standards, able to know what it is that they're voting for. Many are still voting. And the fear around postal votes, the fear around what's often called the industrial harvesting of votes, is still real. But it wouldn't be in this kind of religious institution. It would be played out in that you can imagine a vast secular version of this, a care home, mm. in which... The watchers go in to check and the same double story takes place. The rational view, which is we need to stop people from voting who don't know what they're doing. And the other view, which is in a democracy, that is the slippery slope. In a democracy, everybody votes. Yeah. Well, in a democracy, you've got to take your chances because by the we same do. token, there'll be plenty of 18-year-olds who don't know what the hell they're doing. And my view, which is that children should vote partly because... Once you oh, accept yeah. that second view, which is that right. you take your chances, okay. there's no difference no. in a way between the very old and the very young voting. Mm. We have an arbitrary cutoff. There's something arbitrary about all identity politics in the who gets to vote so version would, of it. Would three-year-olds get the vote? Or what, where, uh, did you have a cutoff point? Six is my, six, six is yeah. my... Or going to school. I mean, able to hold a pencil. I mean, and, and there's a bit of that in this, right? There's mm. a bit of... The baseline for this is can they go into the booth and put a cross mm. or does someone have to walk them in there and put the cross for them? And if you pass the you can put a cross on a piece of paper test, you get to vote. Mm. So that's a basic competence test. Well, if that is the basic competence test, children pass it. Yeah. People further up the building, of course, can't get out of bed. Um, yeah. And so and all of these end up arbitrary, yeah, discriminatory. Yeah, yeah. Democracy is discriminatory. Yeah. Well, absolutely. I mean, um, I'm sure over a glass of wine you could persuade me of the children's vote. Well, if you're but, not going to take I, it away from the old. I, I'm not going to take it away from the old. And so logically I'd accept that a democracy, is it all evens out. And I say that as someone who despaired of the electorate 
over Brexit. But I also accept that, you know, that's the way they all swept and, you know, swept us with them and there it is. We just have to live with it uh, because the alternatives are too dark. And Amerigo, I think, if I had to say what side he comes down on, he doesn't really come down on the side. But there is a part of him, the, the disillusioned communist part, the person who no longer really believes in capital H history, who thinks the dangers of over-rationalizing this are greater, and the, the dangers of over-schematizing it are greater than the dangers of thinking it'll all come out in the wash. That's what makes him so deeply sympathetic. In the end, I think he is resigned. I must tell you that I was hiking on um, family with uh, my granddaughters, my son, his wife, and, and my wife, and we came to a remote shore in, in northwest Scotland, sandy shore. It could be the Caribbean. The sea was blue. The girls immediately took off their clothes and they went off to play and they were throwing stones up in the air and shouting. And um, their mother went over and said, what are you doing? And they said, we're throwing Liz Truss up in the air. <laughs> Oh, and I thought, how did they get this idea? So six and eight. So well inside your... By six and eight, yeah. yeah. So you'd be very happy with that. I mean, <laughs> you've got two votes right there. Well, having just done a series of workshops in a school with six-year-olds, eight-year-olds and ten-year-olds to talk to them about their political views, and then we, and then we did a series of, sort of semi-professional focus groups. So we got a focus group person to come in who normally works with adults in the red wool seats, alienated, angry, yes. former Labour voting adults, and right. come in and work with children across these three age groups. And what was most interesting was how different the six-year-olds, eight-year-olds, and ten-year-olds were. So the six-year-olds were like adult voters on acid. So it was just sort of, they would say something, and then the next thing, they would be doing otter impressions. You know, it's sort of like nothing quite coherent. Yep. The eight-year-olds were smart, articulate, quite well-informed, completely, obviously capable of voting. I mean, I still think the six-year-olds are because we all do otter impressions some of the time. And then the 10-year-olds were deeply cynical. And the person running the focus group said, the 10-year-olds, this is just like talking to angry, disillusioned voters in the north of England. They said, all politicians are rich. They're all in it for themselves. It doesn't matter which one you vote for. Six-year-olds were doing otter impressions, and the eight-year-olds were taking the issues very seriously and talking quite interestingly about the policy options. Well, there's an electorate. They should all vote. OK, so just put me straight on this. Can six-year-olds take their place in Parliament? No. Oh, why not? Because I think that would be an insane idea. So this, okay. is, the, this is the flaw in the enfranchisement of children relative to, say, historic enfranchisements like the enfranchisement um, of women okay. or the poor or of Catholics, which is those were always we need to vote and we need to have people like us in Parliament. This one isn't that. Right, OK. But in the same way, to be honest, mm. we accept that, I mean, there are no 90-year-olds in Parliament, Right. I mean, there could be. There could be. There yeah. could be, but there aren't. I mean, and certainly, um, I know the American... Well, Matt Manishin, well, how old was he when he was... Yeah, but still, there's a, there's a feeling that there's a point at which you stop, but not as voters. There are many, many, many people in their 90s who are voting. And actually, turnout gets higher the older people are until you get right to the end of the scale. Yeah, they care. They care. But it doesn't follow from that that, uh, you know, the parliament is basically full of 50-something, still yeah. predominantly men. That the electorate, and that's it, that's what this book is partly about. It's not so. It's not an allegory or a microcosm of a parliament. It's a microcosm of a, as he says, of a city, of a world, 
These people are not being asked to make policy. They're being asked to put a cross on a piece of paper. And anyone can do that. But they don't know what they're doing, many of them. And yet they're very excited. And many of them have dressed up, especially for the occasion. And a sense of the outside world coming in thrills them. So it's it's like, almost like a, it's a holiday atmosphere. And it's a ceremony. It's a religious sort of yeah. religious ceremony. One of the inmates is called the Bright One. And she's the one who... Um, will patiently explain to the others what they must do and then how they must fold their ballot paper before they put it into the ballot box. And just coming back to either the woman in the white shirt or the woman with the red hair, I can't remember which, she spots early on in the morning when they just got going that one of the inmates came away from the voting booth but hadn't folded her paper. She must have been someone in Amerigo's side of the political spectrum because he was he's the one who says let's do this later we'll get to it well anyway that's a marvelous uh, beyond red herring about children which is a whole other very interesting matter and i'd forgotten that you you did tell me this before and i was so startled by it i couldn't think of a coherent answer to the question but yeah i think logically and i agree with you on this that the whole point about a democracy is that you shouldn't put restrictions on who votes because we do not want to let that power pass to someone else. Now, I suppose the counter-arguments against children would be very much like the counter-arguments against uh, the suffragette. You know, the world has gone on perfectly well, says someone who's quite happy in it, with men just doing the voting. And remember how many women were opposed to having the vote. Yeah, there were many counter-arguments, and we now know with hindsight they were all bad arguments. Yeah. And the other thing that is true of every enfranchisement movement is yeah. there are always people among the disenfranchised. And there are, I can say this because talking to these children in a primary school, about half of them want to vote and about half of them say we're fine as we are, Yeah, which is a bit like late 19th century. Well, they can abstain. Women's enfranchisement. Yeah. But no group among the disenfranchised, once they've got the vote, ever wants to no. give it back. Once it's, then it's a given. It's, it's a given. Yeah. And I, I'm sure it would be the same with children too. Yeah. I want to ask you, do you think of your own fiction in the terms that you talked about as political? I mean, it's... So, so Lessons, for instance, your most recent book, which mm. is, it's not autobiographical, but it's the arc of a life that, that mm. maps onto the some aspects of the shape of your life. And it is punctuated by decisive political moments, before and after moments, not 1956, but the Cuban Missile Crisis is one. The wall coming down in, in 89 is another. And there is a part of the book where the lead character's personal life isn't going particularly well, but politics seems to be going much better, the, the new Labour years. There is politics all the way through it, but no characters are there to promote a political no, point of view. It's, it's more like a background. It's like the soundtracks, as it were. To of all life. of our lives. Yeah. And, and I'm interested in the way those big global issues penetrate thought, the private life, rather than being interested so much in what views my central character, Roland, takes. Although, I have to say, he does leave the Labour Party because when he wants to talk about human rights abuses in the Soviet Empire, the Central Europe, Eastern Europe, he gets either a lot of whataboutism or being told that he's a dupe of the CIA or whatever. Uh, so this is pre-89 when he's smuggling the odd book or 
Velvet Underground record across to East Berlin and senses, even though he has some of the most urgent and interesting conversations of his life around Formica tables on the 15th floor of high-rise buildings in East Berlin, people live highly constrained lives but actually make quite powerful, interesting personal lives within it. But beyond that, um, I don't think of it as a political novel as such. It's not just, in the way that this one no, is. Not remotely, because I, I'm more interested in the way in which the air we breathe, as it were, is the air of current politics. Even if you're not a newspaper reader, even if you don't take an interest in politics, one of the ind- indices of general cultural optimism is the notion of whether your children are going to have a better life than you did. And that's quite a, a good sort of marker, a predictor, really, of, in a generalised sense, what the political state of things is at any given moment. And so for Roland, 89 represents the high point and then it's a long, slow descent with a slight bump with all the optimism in the mid to late 90s of free speech expanding around the world, not only in Europe, but in South America too. And of course, South Africa and its moment to apartheid put away. And then, you know, the chaos, Iraq war and onwards leave him fearful, really, rather than totally pessimistic, but fearful of how things are going to turn out. Especially climate change has, I think, radically altered the way people answer that question about what your children are going to experience is against, you know, are they going to have better lives or not? And I think that especially of my grandchildren who range from two to 30. Um, and as he says to himself, some things are not as bad as you fear in the future and not as good as you hope. That actually, if you look back to how people were thinking of the world in... 1940, when France was invaded and all of Western Europe suddenly, and then Eastern Europe had fallen to the Nazis, your sense answering that question about your children would have been very, very dark indeed and would find it hard to imagine that there would be a Schengen arrangement by which you could move from Slovenia to Sweden without showing your passport. I would have found that very, very difficult to believe. And of course, one, one of my part of my anguish about Brexit was really to contemplate how easily forgotten, how dire it was in 1939 and 40, and how much better it turned out than anyone would have feared at the time. And in fact, as a child of someone who fought that war, my childhood, my prospects were infinitely better than my parents, who suffered you know, the, uh, depression and, and had to fight a war. So... It's really a kind of moral question about one's sense of one's children's future and what we leave them. And it's it's also a political matter because there are political choices that could be made by by voters, by governments, um, that could improve the prospects for one's children and one's children's children. But is that something that you can imagine making a satisfying fiction? Very difficult for all the reasons I mentioned earlier. It's quite easy to speak one's political beliefs or one's moral uh, questions. And it's easy to be gloomy. (laughs) That is the delicious role of all intellectuals and writers, to be gloomy. If you're guilty of too much optimism, you're expressing um, 
too much satisfaction with the status quo. And I, one, one of my interests in, in Roland Bain's fate in, in lessons is the enormous happiness he has in the private life and the gathering gloom he has about public life. And they exist in two compartments. They cannot be united. Perhaps the role of the, of the political novel is somehow bring these together in, in some way. And in a way, that's what happens in, in The Watcher over the course of a day. Amerigo, actually, to start with, he's quite complacent about his private life as the, you know, the bachelor having a nice time, as he describes himself. And he's pretty gloomy about the politics. Yeah. And by the end, it's almost turned around. It's very open. I mean, much is made of the rain. The weather is quite important in this novella. As he's walking towards Cotolengo to start his day's work, it's raining and he says, and this is counter to the, to the British calculation, he says that this always favours the left because the right are mostly elderly and they don't like to come out in the rain. For a whole set of other reasons, we always say that rain favours the Tories. <laughs> and as he said, it all comes out in the wash. Where's the proof? <laughs> I just want the proof. You can't run the control, that's the trouble. And by but, the end, the sun is shining. Yeah. So it's got, you know, that old pathetic fallacy is... Um, irresistible for all of us, I think. Who hasn't sometimes had a sun come out from behind a cloud? <laughs> it's just, you know, it's a deadly compact between writer and reader. Ian McEwan's latest novel that we were discussing there is called Lessons, and it's available everywhere you get good books. Please follow us on Twitter at PPF Ideas, where we will post links to a lot of the things that we've been talking about today, including some interesting pieces of writing about Italo Calvino. Next week, I'm going to be talking to Helen Thompson about Dallas, the most popular TV show in the world in the 1970s and 1980s, and about how that programme explains, well, just about everything. Join us for that. My name is David Runciman, and this has been Past, Present, Future, brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Music